Yeah, hello everybody. Welcome back. Why Bitcoin Podcast. Another episode. Joined here today with J.W. Weatherman. J.W., how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. Good. Thanks for having me on. This is going to be fun. I haven't done a podcast in a while, so um, I guess I take that back. I did one with Rollo and Slappy not that long ago, but uh, but it, it, you know, it's, it's another small podcast, so probably not. <laughs> A lot of overlapping listenership even uh, <laughs> even though it's a small community right on yeah i know it's it's funny right people say there's too many bitcoin podcasts but also it's like well you're not listening to all of them because they're fucking everywhere so i think yeah. we only need more plus they're a lot of fun to record because bitcoiners are awesome so i would never tell somebody not to do it i think it's fun yeah i agree i, th- I think we need about 10 times more of the non-sponsored non um you know, completely sold out to some uh, shitty company uh, podcast. Absolutely, man. I feel that. Uh, since it's your f- first time on the show, I'd like to just start with uh, how would you describe yourself as a person in the Bitcoin space or ecosystem or however you want to call it? Uh, yeah. yeah. Who are you? Who are you? Yeah, so I worked in like startups and software security for most of my career. Um, and found out about Bitcoin in like late 2017, pretty much at the peak. Um, I think I'm still under inflation adjusted. I don't think I'm, I'm positive yet. So I, I, uh, I think I hold the record for like the earliest Bitcoin or not to be in the, in the black. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got really obsessed with Bitcoin. Um, I, I had, uh, you know, I'd read Human Action, and I was definitely into Austrian economics uh, before I found out about Bitcoin. Um, and then uh, when I did, I, I kind of did what a lot of people do that really get obsessed with it. I started, uh, like, I co-hosted a podcast with some people that are that are still around and kind of semi-famous, uh, you know, like, like Bitcoin personality types. Um, but, uh, but the thing that I'm kind of most proud of is within a few months, I put out... Um, some lect- lectures on um, uh, on economics. Uh, let me uh, let me. I've, I've got uh, some background noise. Let me uh, go deal with that real quick. Yeah, yeah. So if you go out to ten hours of bitcoin.com, there's a bunch of. Um, it's basically the the ten hours that uh, that I think people need um, to get up to speed on what Bitcoin is. Um, and so it was kind of my my attempt to do that. I think I've got about maybe two and a half, three hours of lectures there um, that I put up in a class uh, within a few months of being involved in Bitcoin because I I had all of this like synthesis of Austrian economics and Bitcoin in my head and wanted to kind of share that perspective. Um, And this was, I don't know if the Bitcoin standard had been released yet. I think maybe maybe it hadn't, um, but I know a lot of people hadn't really been exposed to that. Um, so yeah, we had a lot of, uh, people that kind of ended up being pretty influential Bitcoiners, uh, Rollo and Slappy, uh, you know, the heavily armed clown who did, uh, WTF happened in 1971, that whole meme. Um, so I don't know, I think we had maybe 60 people take the class and, uh, quite a few of them, um, turned out to, to do other important things in the space. Um, so that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. And then, uh, that, and, uh, a lot of work on the security side. Um, and I guess I, I, uh, sort of started the get on zero, uh, meme. Um, so, and that's a little bit, that's a little bit more recent. So those are probably my, my Bitcoin career highlights there. Right on, man. Yeah. Heavily armed clown, uh, fan of him. He, he's been on the show. What the fuck happened in 1971 was one of my favorite discoveries when I was uh, going through my initial Bitcoin rabbit hole. Cause I was like, Oh, this is an awesome Bitcoin, uh, website. And then he's on the show. I'm like, yeah, it's so great. He's like, yeah, it doesn't mention Bitcoin once. I was like, wait, it doesn't. That's unreal. So <laughs> it's so funny to just see yeah. all that shit. Yeah. That dude, yeah. that dude's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a it's a brilliant meme. It's had uh, so much coverage. It's been amazing to watch that. Um, I guess the other the other thing people know me for is uh, my involvement with the Canadian trucker protest. Um, so that was that was kind of an interesting uh, situation. Um, the, and there, there's different versions of what happened, but the the most accurate is the documentary. Um, it's a short documentary. It's like 20 minutes that um, that Reason TV um, or Reason Magazine put together. So if you search for like Canadian trucker protest reason. 
um, that's that's the best source for what what all went down there. Are you are you a Canadian yourself? I am a Canadian, and uh, again, I said you don't have to dox yourself in any way if you don't want to. But I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I'm not Canadian. Yeah, I'm American. Uh, but you I only got the... involved. So yeah, my involvement was was uh, basically the the short version is I donated. Um, I realized that uh, that the people that raised the money and took the donations were planning on basically just keeping the funds for themselves. Uh, they started talking about. Well, first, it was supposed to be distributed to the truckers pretty quickly. And we were like many, many days into the protest and no funds had been distributed. And then they started talking about, oh, we're going to set up a foundation and we're going to use the funds for this and that. And uh, I had been around long enough to know that that smells like a rug pull. Um, and it's not what anybody donated for. We, we donated with the expectation the funds were going to be distributed. So I complained on Twitter um, and then Nobody Caribou, who was one of the organizers, uh, reached out and said, hey, I'm kind of in this really awkward situation. I don't know how to distribute the funds, but I want to. Um, and so we put together some code that allowed him to, uh, with other people as well, like I, I coordinated it, but but there were other folks that, that made this happen also. Uh, so as a group, we put together this code that split up uh, about $600,000 is what he had access to. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a nightmare that he had per one guy had access to that much funds in a situation like this. There's so many ways that could have went wrong. Um, so we quickly uh, broke those funds into a hundred uh, small, smaller wallets with about 6,000 each. Um, and then uh, put them in, um, had to write some code. So basically it, it all printed out. Right. So, all this is like kind of custom on the fly uh, stuff that we did in a panic. Um, but it printed out a hundred different paper wallets that you could scan with blue, with blue wallet on your phone and use that QR code to just import it into your phone. Um, and then all the instructions too. So, so he went around and just handed out a hundred envelopes to, uh, to all the different truckers that were parked downtown. Basically, if you were in a big truck uh, and you were downtown and you responded to him, he jumped up in your cab and handed you an envelope and explained where it was. Um, and so we got $600,000 distributed uh, of the roughly $900,000 that, that had been raised in, um, in Bitcoin, so about two-thirds. Um, and then the next day, the, the judge uh, issued a court order uh, preventing anybody from doing anything and then you know ultimately seized the, what was left. So... Two thirds of the funds, though, did get into the hands of the truckers, which a lot of people don't know. Um, uh, and that that whole situation where people don't know what happened is is a whole story in and of itself. But um, but yeah, it was it was uh, it turned out pretty well all in all. Nice man. Yeah, I remember I remember hearing about that story. Um, I I did see on your Twitter that you're saying that story didn't get get out, and maybe it's just because I'm biased. I'm like that story was everywhere. But then again, I'm like a psycho Bitcoiner that follows every news story. So maybe to me it was everywhere, but maybe it wasn't as a, uh, as big of a story as it should have been. Do you think? Well, no, no, I think it was a big story. What didn't get out um, is that the truckers actually got the Bitcoin, right? So yeah. um, one of the, one of the things that happened is Bitcoin magazine put out a really negative uh, story about what happened and made it seem like uh, that basically it was a failed project, right? Uh, all this money raised and then it, it didn't get to the truckers or, you know, the, or, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it got to the truckers, but they all, ha they were all doxxed, right? So there was a, there was a huge, really coordinated, interesting spin because the whole, the whole intention was like Mr. Beast, right? Like, Hey, we're going to raise some money and give it to the truckers. Um, and you have to, you have to somehow show that you gave money to truckers, right? Or people are going to like, people still will say, oh, wait a minute, somebody told me you just ran off with the money. I'm like, first of all, I never had the private keys. Uh, ask nobody caribou. I never had access to steal if I wanted to. I mean, I probably could have because I was writing code that caribou couldn't code review, but um, but I, I didn't, right? I didn't steal the money. Um, and you can, you can see, like, there were people that, there were truckers that were on live interviews, um, at least one of them that I know of that I saw, because uh, there was so much media coverage and the trucker is sitting in the cab and caribou jumps up. And so there's video evidence of a guy that was live streaming, getting approached by caribou and then the whole spiel and being handed an envelope. Right. So there's a lot of evidence that 
I don't have the money. But the point is, there was a lot of really coordinated, what I would call PR, uh, to either make it seem like we had done something terrible to these people's privacy, um, or that they didn't get the money. So there's a lot of people that think either one or the other happened. When in reality, like ev- every every trucker that um, uh, that received the money understood that they were on camera receiving the money, and it was like this big public giveaway, like you know, Mr. Beast. It wasn't intended to like fund some sort of government overthrow. Otherwise, it would have needed to be a whole lot more secret. But but also, you can't do that. You know, nobody caribou. You know, he's not a super spy, so you can't give this kid a million dollars and then not expect him to need to show that he actually distributed it, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. So a, a lot of people have one impression or the other. I remember Jordan Peterson was at the Bitcoin conference right after and um, and said something along the line. He was on a panel, and I think, I think Greg was there. Um, Greg, uh, what's that guy? He sounds like Kermit the Frog. Um, Greg Foss? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin Tina 2.0. Um, so he was there at the conference and, uh, and so was Jordan Peterson and Jordan Peterson said something along the lines of, you know, it's a shame that, uh, that all of the funds were frozen and nobody corrected him on the panel, you know? And so even just a few days later, it was like the guys at reason were going, Whoa, what's happening here? Why does everybody have this, uh, really, you know, (laughs) <laughs> like this impression that the funds didn't get distributed. Um, so uh, I, I think that's kind of an interesting case study, right? You don't have to, uh, you don't have to prevent Bitcoin from working. You just have to convince the majority of people that Bitcoin failed in some circumstance. And I, I think by and large, they were successful in that. That's interesting, man. Um, I think a critical error a lot of Bitcoiners or just people in general maybe jump into here is thinking that, because Bitcoin is trustless and censorship, you know, all the Bitcoin buzzwords, that it's going to do that all the way down the line. But whenever you talk about two people exchanging Bitcoin, there's always going to be a trust factor because it's two humans involved in moving money around. So like whenever any transaction happens, if I'm going to buy a car five years down the line for Bitcoin, there's going to be a point where somebody has car keys i have bitcoin i send it to him and i'm gonna hope that it gives me the fucking car keys so there's always going to be that trust factor so uh knowing that how what 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 do you think people were expecting um you guys to do then and then also what would you do differently if you if you were to do it again in the future i ask because it seemed like the whole thing got thrown together really quickly just like a bunch of bitcoiners on twitter said hey let's raise some money for the truckers and then uh btc sessions ben he's been on the show yeah. as well i think he was part of it as well and it, it just seemed like it got out of control like the amount of sats rolling in were way more than they expected to and so like you said you guys were kind of in a, a, well, a mad so, dash so- to figure it all out <laughs> all at once ideally it yeah. would have been organized so if you could do it again right now what would you do differently yeah, so I do want to make a little bit of distinction between me and uh, Greg Foss, Ben, you know, the BTC Sessions dude, and Jeff Booth. Those were the three guys that really raised the money and created the problem, which was uh, they took a bunch of money in and they had a really terrible security setup. And then they didn't take any steps to distribute the money to the intended recipients. And then they started saying that they were going to keep the funds and use it for some great, you know, nonprofit that they were going to establish. That was those guys. I was one of the donors that got pissed off and then helped the one honest guy in the situation, which in my opinion was nobody caribou, uh, take the money that he had access to, which was two thirds of it, and at least get that distributed before the, you know, and the other third could have potentially been distributed, but there were other clowns involved. I, I don't know which of those three guys um, would have had to sign a transaction. Um, but it, yes, it, so it was a it was a hot mess and managed very badly. Um, and that's why I complained and then ended up helping out. Um, and the, the other thing I, I'd say is that uh, from the very beginning when, you know, I was just complaining. I wasn't really wanting to help. <laughs> I wanted to complain until people, other people complained maybe, and then they actually got off their butt and distributed the funds. Um, I didn't want, 
I didn't want the money not to get to the truckers, but I didn't plan on investing anything more than just a little bit of complaining on Twitter uh, initially. But then it turned out nobody Caribou was actually a really, really good guy and uh, DM'd me and basically said, hey, I'm in this really terrible situation and, uh, and I need help. And so that's when that's when I got involved to help. Um, but but I don't I, I still very much question the motives of those guys. Uh, I don't think that. Uh, you know, I, I can I can tell you the facts. The facts are they raised a bunch of money from good intention people, and then they publicly announced that they weren't going to distribute the funds to truckers before I said anything. Um, so, I wouldn't trust those guys with fifteen bucks at this point. Um, what what would I do differently? Uh, basically, there's a there's a couple things. One is um, if if you raise money publicly and then you take it, you know, basically you take custody of it, then you have to have the expectation that you're going to distribute it publicly or, or people are going to have to just trust you a whole lot. And you're going to have to be okay with some people thinking that you still have the money. Um, and you know, a young guy like nobody caribou, he was not okay with people thinking that he still had the million bucks. He wanted, he wanted everybody to know that the funds were no longer in his possession and they were distributed because, uh, because another problem that that creates is, is the security situation, right? If you don't do a proper multi-sig and you have seven figures of money, it becomes a real physical security threat, you know, to people that do have access to it. They can steal it for one. Uh, and so there's probably a real temptation to do that. Uh, but they can never really prove that they didn't steal it if anybody, any of the other people steal it. So, you know, Caribou was in a super awkward spot because not only could he... Uh, run off with the money. He knew there were other people that could run off with the money that he didn't really know very well. Um, and then he would not be able to prove that he didn't do it. Right. So, so, you know, obviously you just need to like use your head a little bit. If it was like a five of seven multi-sig and there were seven well-known people and they each had a key, uh, and they, you know, then it would have been fine. Um, but a better, a better solution, and this is, uh, you know, what I suggested right after, um, is uh, basically go around and and get all. Like if I was to if I was to say, hey, you know, there's another protest, I'm not getting involved at all because that was a nightmare. Uh, but if somebody asked me, I think there is a, a Google Doc up somewhere that basically says, look, go around and help all the truckers get QR codes taped to the side of their truck, and then just film. The, the scene with the truckers, you know, maybe help people get t-shirts that are down there that are protesting with QR codes so that, so that as a potential, you know, a donor, I can just watch on YouTube and go, Oh, okay. There's a truck there. It's parked there. It's got this QR code. And then I can scan it from the video and send them, you know, send them a few bucks in Bitcoin. And then there is no, you know, trusted third party with this, uh, you know, big pile of, of uh, money, just asking somebody to, to murder you for it. Yeah, man. I, I think uh, the, the Bitcoin kind of fixes this, right? You just take more and more people out. The more Bitcoiners are, are out there, if any of the truckers were Bitcoiners, then they could have just done that. It would have solved the problem. Here's here's a code. Send me sats if you want to help me out. That, uh, right. That's yep. definitely the way to do it. I completely agree. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think you, you know, you walk up and you say, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks uh, right now. You know, I'll be the first person that gives you some money. Let me put this QR. Let me walk you through the process of putting a QR code on your truck so you can take other donations too. Right. Um, right I think on. most of those truckers would have been happy to do that. Yeah, that's fair. That's an interesting story, man. You could probably make a whole. Sh- <laughs> there should be a lot more documentation and stories about what happened with that thing because I think it's going to be probably you know in a couple of havings from now that'll be one of the stories that comes up when you know Bitcoin's early days and how it helped a couple guys. It'll be a, it'll be one of those stories that Bitcoin historians will look at. I think. I hope, anyways, because yeah. it was yeah. uh, <laughs> good and bad. Good and bad things happen there. Okay, let, let's let's move on before we keep ranting about the truckers. Love those guys though. Okay, um, what's wrong with hardware wallets, dude? Why do you hate hardware wallets so much? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I guess, I guess I would say that um, big picture, uh, I think a lot of Bitcoiners are naive a little bit that there aren't foreign countries that are trying to steal your Bitcoin. Um, there, there are foreign, you know, like North Korea, they spend a lot of money just trying to get, uh, malware installed on your laptop so that then they can, um, uh, 
they can ransomware you, right? Um, because North Korean, you know, government is not going to be able to tax U.S. citizens. It's not going to be able to tax Canadian citizens. But they're also there's really no consequence for them stealing from U.S. citizens or Canadian citizens. Um, and you have whole agencies with billions and billions of dollars that are tasked with these sort of things, right? Um, maybe the U.S. does it, maybe they don't, but they certainly do other stuff where they, you know, they want to gather intelligence and knowledge on a, you know, a global scale, right? So with that as the backdrop, uh, the fact that you could have any software that stores enough wealth to provide for your family and, and maybe for, you know, a couple generations is actually kind of miraculous. Like that, the fact that that can be done safely in this world is something that I think all Bitcoiners should be in awe of and should understand why that's possible. Um, and the reason that that's possible is the magic of open source software. Um, you can't do this with closed source software, like, you know, Microsoft or, Google or something like that that's closed source because we know that governments, uh, especially, you know, the U.S. government, right, with the Snowden leaks, they'll just tell a company to do something. They'll tell it, hey, take all your data and give it to us or insert these servers in your data center um, or uh, what was it, Lava, Lava Bit, I think. Um, I think he's the only guy in history uh, so far that, um, that got an order from the U.S. government and, and then defied it. I don't think anybody's done it since, and I don't think anybody did it prior. He was running like an email server, and I think Edward Snowden may have used it at one point. And the way that this works is you get a letter from the government that, that is a gag order, basically. It says, you can't talk about this. This is a national security issue. Um, and what we want you to do is X, Y, and Z. So it's not like you can go, oh, well, this is outrageous. I'm going to go on Twitter and, you know, tell all of my users that the U.S. government is wanting me to do something or, or the German government or the French government or the North Korean government or whatever, uh, whatever region you happen to be running servers or services in. Um, you know, the Czech Republic, I think, is Trezor, right? So it, it, it's not like if you're in the Czech Republic and they tell you, hey, you're not allowed to talk about this. This is a national security issue. You know, this is like treason if you talk about it publicly. Um, it's not like you can just go on Twitter and rant about it. Um, so a lot of the big guy, if you look into that story, he actually did. He, he, uh, he did say, hey, um, and I, I think he had some advantage because... I think what they told him is you can't talk about it unless you shut, shut down the service. Um, so he had this kind of weird opportunity that I'm sure that they've closed up since to say, okay, I'll just shut down the service. But they really didn't think he was going to do it. He was a startup guy, put years into building this email service and making it really secure. Um, so my guess is that now the letters don't say that. Uh, they don't say, you, you know, you can shut down the service if you want. But anyway, that's that's what he did. Now, if you apply that to any other Bitcoin company, um, uh, the question is like, how 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 is Blockstream, for example, able to um, contribute to Bitcoin Core and not uh, not have the possibility of them saying, "Hey, we want you to put this backdoor in your code." Um, that that should make Bitcoin impossible, right? We shouldn't be able to actually have a government hard money. Um, but because it's open source, uh, if Blockstream, you know, Blockstream has many contributors to Bitcoin Core is the reason I'm giving this example. They're, they're not the only ones, obviously. Uh, but even if they were the only ones, when it's open source and you have a lot of other people that care about it, you have a ton of eyeballs on the code. Um, and so if somebody was to try to insert a security flaw in Bitcoin Core, it, it just wouldn't work. So they're, they're not even going to really attempt doing something that that uh, ham-fisted, right? Um, but what about, you know, what about some small wallet that not a lot of people look at? E even if it's open source, um, which some of these wallets are not open source, but even if it is, um, if you have three people that contribute to it and they all work for the same company um, and almost nobody else looks at it, uh, then it would be it would be trivial, right, for, for a a good government, a bad government, you know, whatever your definition is, um, a mafia, uh, really just anybody that could grab a developer by the neck and shake them, um, it would be pretty trivial for them to force a developer um, to uh, to do that. 
Um, and so most hardware wallets are in that category. You have a very small number of people writing the code. You have a very small number of people reviewing it. Um, and it's just, it's, it's not a safe situation. And I, you know, I said this, I, I started explaining this, I don't know, two, three years ago, and everybody thought that I was a little bit crazy. Um, but now we have, uh, not only do we have stuff on the blockchain that shows that wallets have actually hacked their users, right? Um, using, uh, using, uh, nonce, uh, nonce, I don't know if it's nonce reuse, but basically malicious nonces, um, we can look on the blockchain and find a bunch of people that have been robbed um, and they have no way to prove it. And this would apply to an offline air gapped hardware wallet, right? A nonce attack is something where the, the wallet is evil and the way that it can, the way that it signs the transaction when you ask it to sign it leaks your, your seed words essentially to people that know how to look for it on the blockchain. So the, the act of signing a transaction even though you're fully air gapped, uh, that transaction does end up on the network, obviously, and uh, and so we've seen people that have stolen money that way, um, and then we also recently saw the Bitcoin, which was actually, I would say, you know, if if you were to to rate like the the safety of software and how respected it is and how many people are code reviewing it, Bitcoin Core is obviously at the top. Um, something like. Uh, um, uh, I don't know, like a, a foundation devices or a Trezor, you know, Trezor might be a little bit higher, but pretty low, right? By comparison, like, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but there's probably at least a thousand people that would catch a security flaw within two days if you tried to get it into Bitcoin Core. And maybe there's 10, you know, you hope that would catch it if it was inserted into a Trezor or a foundation devices or a cold card or something, right? Within a few days. Um, so, couple orders of magnitude, I would say, different uh, level of security there. But LeBitcoin is a library that was like featured in Andreas Antonopoulos's book, um, you know, that he wrote years ago. Um, it's, it's used by some exchanges. It's like, it's a pretty well-respected chunk of code. So I would have, if you asked me, put that somewhere in between, right? Like way, way more uh, difficult to insert a security flaw there than a Trezor. Uh, but way, way harder or way, way easier than Bitcoin Core, right? Um, and the developer that ran the Bitcoin uh, just, you know, in the last like week and a half, two weeks or something, this has all come out. He intentionally inserted a security flaw in the Bitcoin. Um, it weakened your seed words um, so that uh, many of the developers that were using it, many of the, the uh, projects that trusted the Bitcoin, ended up creating seed words that were easy enough to guess. Um, and people have lost funds. Um, so we don't know, you know, the extent of how much has been lost. We know it's more than a million bucks so far. Um, but, uh, but if you wake up one day and you just don't have any Bitcoin left, not everybody is going to, you know, go online, especially if you're somewhat successful um, and say, Hey, you know, I lost, you know, maybe you're worth a few million bucks and you lose $75,000 in Bitcoin, you're probably not going to go on Twitter and, and say anything about it because uh, a lot of people are going to laugh at you. You're going to have a lot of uh, people that sell hardware wallets saying, well, you should have just followed the instructions. You know, you must have done it to yourself and that sort of stuff. Um, so we, we don't really know how much, because uh, unlike, uh, unlike the nonce attacks, um, and there's different ways to do nonce attacks too, right? We know of some instances of nonce attacks that are very obvious, uh, but there's a nonce attacks that can be done where we can't see that it was done on the blockchain. So we know that it's been done. Uh, we know it's been done in a really like stupid way that we can verify that it's been done. We don't know if it's been done in a more sophisticated way. And I don't think we'll ever know how much money was stolen from the Bitcoin. Um, but, uh, but the, the lesson here is not that this stuff is impossible. It's just you have to use super popular open source software uh, to have any level of security. Um, and the only thing that, that really meets that criteria is Bitcoin Core. So, you, so you're a strong believer in don't buy. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a Trezor. Oops, sorry, muted myself. Okay, so you're a strong believer in using... Uh, 
Bitcoin core just by itself on an old laptop, the old old way of doing it just that way. You think that'd be the safest way for any given person to to store their Bitcoin, just give up on all these hardware wallets. And the the main the main argument is just that humans are corruptible. And so if somebody owns a hardware wallet, um, development, whatever, you know, Trezor, Ledger, Cold Card, they can be corrupted. So you shouldn't trust them. You should just trust yourself. I think that's like, that's well, fair, right? Yeah, like that's... So, so let's just, let's look at like software basics again, right? Um, so there's all kinds of stuff that matters. Um, like the firmware that you have in your laptop could matter a little bit. The operating system you have on your laptop could matter a little bit. Um, the, but the thing that matters the most is the software that generates your seeds and signs your transactions, right? What, what we all call the wallet. And I think a lot of people think when they have a hardware wallet, there isn't software that runs on that hardware that is doing all of that. But there, there is. Uh, there's, still a, there's still wallet software that runs there. So the first thing you have to do is just figure out what wallet software can I trust, right? That is the most important thing to do. And the only wallet software that you can, like, let's just say generating random seeds, right? The only software that you can trust to really generate random seeds is Bitcoin Core. Because if if there was a flaw introduced in the Bitcoin, we know it wouldn't be noticed. We just saw it happen, right? And that's because it wasn't popular enough. There wasn't enough brilliant people looking at it to save your ass if somebody inserted a flaw there. Right. That's objective and very easy to get your head around. So it's maybe an open question whether it could be done to Bitcoin Core. But if it could be done to Bitcoin Core, the whole experiment fails. Right. Um, And this is an approach that a lot of people will have when they explain like the problems. They'll say, well, if it's that hard to do, then Bitcoin is doomed. No, it's not doomed. A lot of people lost money on FTX. A lot of people will lose money on the Bitcoin. I think a lot of people are going to lose money on cold card. Uh, but Bitcoin is going to be just fine because there's still a lot of smart people that figured this out. Um, most technology people that came in, that were technology people before and then came into Bitcoin know that in order to trust an open source project, it has to be popular. So they're they're not having to ramp up like just you know some Joe Schmo accountant that gets into Bitcoin. They don't they don't really understand these incentives or why anything could be secure in the first place. Um, so those guys are going to be just fine. It's it's just you're going to lose your money, right? Uh, I guarantee you Jack Dorsey is using Bitcoin Core uh, to secure his his funds that he cares about. He's not, you know, he's not using some, uh, he's, he wasn't using LaBitcoin, right? And he's certainly not using something less popular than LaBitcoin. Wasn't cold card, okay, so I'm a construction guy. I don't know shit about code. I can do a little HTML, <laughs> okay? That, that's about the extent of what I know. But wasn't... Yeah. Um, my understanding was that cold card was open source up until relatively recently, meaning that people were able to look at the code and verify what they were doing and all that shit. So it may be ignorance on my part, but I figured if somebody can look at it and enough people are looking at it, then it must be legit. Um, and then they recently switched to clo- cold, no, what is it called? Closed source because uh, foundation took their code or whatever. So am I uh, just misinterpreting that situation? Do you, do you no, know more about true. what happened? So- so, and this, this should be kind of a red flag for people um, if that, that know the story. And anybody that's worked around technology and open source, this was a huge concern for them. But, uh, but Cold Card's pretty good at marketing and just, you know, like a lot of companies, you just kind of ignore it. And most people aren't technical. And so they, they end up, you know, they end up buying your crap anyway. Um, but basically what happened is Trezor was open source. Cold card used their code, um, and the reason that the reason that companies want things to be open source is they want to be trusted, right? If Trezor creates code and it's not open source back in I don't know they, they've been around way longer than me. Let's say 2016. I, I'm I'm guessing, um, especially at that point, the Bitcoin community was much more tech savvy because it was still kind of uh, kind of tech nerds, right? They would have been laughed out of the place, right? Nobody would have been willing to use it. And if anybody said that they were going to use it on a forum, they would have been shamed because it's not even open source. So they, it has to be open source. And the reason for that is that people that understand this stuff know 
that only open source software, it's not about the ability to like go check the code because almost nobody is going to go check the code. We, we don't have time for that, right? Um, I haven't checked, I haven't tried to read 2% of all the open source code that I depend on, you know, basically with my life. But the way the incentive structure works is if it's popular, like Ubuntu or, or, or uh, Debian or Arch Linux, right? I would be really comfortable using that sort of software uh, in a medical scenario to like monitor, you know, my heartbeat or something like that. But I've never reviewed that code. And the reason is I know that if somebody found flaws in that code, they can make a whole career out of it, right? There's, there's a whole bunch of security researchers in the world. And if they can find a flaw in, in popular open source software, that looks really good on the resume and they can be given, you know, very well paying, good paying jobs if they can demonstrate a string of pulling that off. So when I trust something like Linux, I'm trusting that if there was a flaw in it, it probably would have been found uh, because there's so much money to be made in finding a flaw in that. Now, if you take some other software that nobody really knows about or uses and you find a flaw in it and put on your resume, it's worth nothing, right? Who cares, right? You didn't, you didn't find a flaw in something that billions of people use. Um, you found a flaw in something maybe, you know, your cousin wrote or something, right? It's, it's not impressive. Um, so uh, the same thing applies with Bitcoin Core. Like if, if a Bitcoiner found a security flaw in Bitcoin Core, and that has happened, right? Like the blue mat found a, a flaw in Bitcoin Core and everybody was super impressed with him um, and we're still impressed with him, right? Like he, he's, that helped establish his reputation even more. Um, even though he had been a Bitcoin developer, that that's very impressive, right? There's, there's going to be, what, a few dozen people that ever exist that find an important security flaw in Bitcoin Core. Uh, but if you find a flaw in foundation devices, I mean, I, I would be surprised if I couldn't find a flaw of some kind in foundation devices or Trezor or something like that, uh, if I put a bunch of effort into it. Um, you know, I found flaws in... Uh, um, Casa. So Jameson Locke, you know, a lot of people think he's some kind of security guru. He was like a front-end developer for BitGo, had no security experience, and then uh, somehow with the right PR was created into a security guru, and then started this company called Casa. Um, that I, I don't know how much they're marketing anymore. Um, their CEO has left, and and uh, they haven't been able to raise around in a while. But um, but I was looking through their documentation. And it said, hey, we transfer, you know, all of this stuff over HTTP. And I looked at the URL and I thought, no, it can't be right. Um, and then I started making fun of them on Twitter, you know, thinking that it was going to be a documentation bug. And instead of them saying, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's actually encrypted, they came back with, oh, there's no reason not to send your seed words unencrypted over your local network because all local networks are secure enough. Um, and you can go back and, you know, if you search for, when was this? I don't know. It's it's in my Twitter history. It's probably around 2020. Um, but I'm not famous for that. Like, not the Bitcoin core developers weren't like, wow, GW found something really amazing, even though, you know, the, Casa was a pretty popular company at the time. Um, it, it's not impressive because they're a bunch of asshats, right? Um, and so just because normal people trusted them doesn't mean that, you know, it's a sort of career-making finding. Um but if I found something in Bitcoin Core, you know, then then I'd be awesome. That's crazy, man. Yeah, you seem a lot like me in uh, the way you look at the Bitcoin space. Like, there's so many products, so much shit. And when I go around, like, I very rarely go around orange pilling people now. But like, I have one friend that I'm talking to about Bitcoin, and so obviously hardware wallets come up. He's like, "Well, which one should I get? What's a good one? Why do I need it?" And I'm like. I don't know if you do need it. <laughs> like, I'm still trying. I'm still trying to come to terms with that myself. Like, I bought mine when I was a Bitcoiner for like three weeks. I'm like, ooh, hardware wallet. This is cool. I want a little gadget. This is awesome. But the more you think about it, the more it's like there's so many other ways to do it. And yeah, like it either works or it doesn't work. You just gotta. There's so many different ways to make Bitcoin work for you, and uh, you just want to do it the most secure, safe, and the right way, the the best way possible. So it's it's good to let people know that there's. <laughs> other options than just buying every other gadget that's on the shelf because people are like even just people that go to work in bitcoin is kind of it's kind of strange to me because that, that that was the other thing i realized pretty quick 
it's like, oh man, I like, I fucking love Bitcoin. Don't get me wrong. I could talk about it all day, but going to get a job in Bitcoin, it's like, what are the jobs making toys and stuff like uh, coin guy does and you know the block clock is cool i i want one of those eventually just because i think it's neat but then what are the other jobs like exchanges and brokerages that and that's about it right yep. and like even those are going to be I, I came to realize pretty soon those are going to be obsolete within what a few halvings maybe depending on how how humanity fares in the next little while here because you won't you won't need them anymore so it's just it's really yeah. weird. It's really weird getting into the Bitcoin space and just seeing all the different ways people are trying to make money and trying to discern what's what's legit and what what isn't. So it's nice to have somebody that's just also being critical of all these people. I think that's important. Um, I don't know if I had, oh I yeah I, did yeah. I mean uh, just to to add some more color to that. If you look up like Project Mockingbird and I can't remember the other one, um, but basically the the CIA has. Um, spent a lot of money investing in tech companies, right? Um, and they do that uh, because they want to they have influence and they want to know what's being built. And, you know, they, they, they want to have some control, right, of these tech companies. And one of the cheapest ways to do that is just take, you know, you don't have to take a trillion dollars. You can take 500 billion or 5 billion and just sprinkle it around to every, you know, every startup that looks somewhat interesting in Silicon Valley, right? Um, and if you think that they would do that, you know, way before Bitcoin and then not target Bitcoin companies, that's that's very naive, I think. And then, you know, the CIA isn't the only folks that do that. That's, you know, if you're if you're a country and you're not spending money on infiltrating Bitcoin companies, then I don't know what's wrong with you. Right? <laughs> like you're pretty incompetent. So you start layering on this stuff. I mean, at this point, I assume that most podcasts and most companies in the Bitcoin space are, you know, very compromised. Uh, but it brings back, it brings us back to like the magic of open source, right? In spite of all of that, we can still have stuff that, that really works and can keep them out. Um, but it's gotta be open source and it's gotta be uh, popular open source or, uh, or nobody's going to catch them when they try to do some shenanigans like they just did with little Bitcoin. Crazy, man. Yeah, it is wild out there. Um, how do you feel about Blue Wallet? You brought up Blue Wallet. Blue Wallet is one of my favorite wallets. Is but the the problem I have is I don't know who to fucking reach out to to talk about Blue Wallet. I don't know who created it. It's like like when when you talk about Cold Card, you can find NVK really quick. When you talk about River, I've talked to Alex Lee. You know, all these people are accessible. I don't know who made Blue Wallet. I don't know how it works. Is it legit? How much do you know about that specific? Uh, wallet yeah i think that's actually the wallet that we used when we were distributing funds to the canadian truckers because it's super user friendly um and they had that feature where you could just scan a qr code to import your your c words um so uh i don't i don't know the guys well um i wouldn't use it for my life savings um but uh i would use it i mean your your criteria there just to read it back to you is one how accessible they are right if bad guys are always super accessible because they're, they're the most, like the scammers are the most friendly, most accessible, most engaged on Twitter. Um, and they're usually very, very likable, uh, because, because they're, they're scammers, right? They, I mean, they're, they're planning on sticking a knife in your back, but they're going to wait until, you know, they have to build your trust first. Right. Um, and if you look at, at something like, uh, I don't know, async actually is, is maybe a good example. Um, these guys are building lightning software. Uh, they're writing it in Scala, which is a very challenging programming language, but, uh, but results in, you know, really, it's kind of like, maybe you guys have heard about people moving to Rust. It's sort of like that. Um, and I don't know who those guys are. I, I don't think I've ever heard them on a podcast, uh, but they're some of the best, uh, best, like most trustworthy people around. Um, and I think I trust them more because I don't know who they are, right? Uh, because nerds that are just... Um, oh, I lost it. Like I, You've cut out. The kind of people that contribute to open source, like these are... the, the They're usually introverts. And this is, vol this is mostly like altruistic, self-sacrificing volunteer work. That's where all of the good open source code comes from. It very rarely comes from companies. Um, you know, you look at Linux 
Linus Torvalis uh, is is just a guy that worked for a long time because he really loved what he was doing, and uh, he wasn't getting paid for it, and he just wanted to better humanity. So there's a very cypherpunk um, kind of aspect to, to open source software. Um, and so when I see people that are you know super accessible, it doesn't make me trust them more. I, I expect them to be you know scammers if they're super accessible. So. Uh, we kind of have an opposite uh, heuristic there uh, for what's trustworthy. Uh, but again, I wouldn't use the async code um, to store my life savings either. Um, and I wouldn't use the blue wallet code to store my life savings. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're both open source. So that checks a big box for me. Um, they seem competent, like the features that they ship uh, seem pretty legit. I, I kind of think that the blue wallet guys are planning on using Greenlight. So I think they planned on, you know, they had like a very custodial lightning experience. Um, they didn't rug pull anybody, so that's pretty good. Um, and then I think they're planning on using, they, they like shut it down uh, from what I remember to so that they could move to Greenlight. So I've seen them make some technical decisions and have some opportunities to steal and not take those opportunities. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you still really need it to be very open source. Like I don't know, or I, it, you need it to be very popular. I don't know how many people would notice if Blue Wallet inserted a security flaw to steal funds. Um, I don't know how long it would take for people to notice if it would be like LeBitcoin. But I, I assume that it would be like LeBitcoin because I don't think, I, like... Okay, so one of the things that, that happens with open source that makes it trustworthy is that other people use it. Um, so like the Bitcoin should have been more trustworthy because it had a lot of people using it and those people were building with it and like building products. And so they were looking at the code, right? Um, it, the more people looking at the code, the more difficult it is to screw your users. Pretty, pretty straightforward. And the more people that use your code the more people are going to look at it. Um, and so LeBitcoin was open source and it allowed people to use it in their products. Um, and it, it was used in quite a few wallets and different products. Um, I think Blue Wallet doesn't have as much going for it in that sense, because I don't think other people are actually using their code. They're not, they're not like a kind of a popular library that people have forked and are building off of. And I could be wrong. Maybe there's five other wallets that are using Blue Wallet's code, but I don't think so. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think they're good guys. I think it, it, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of hard to say, like, don't trust this project because it's not popular because eventually it could become popular and it's never going to become popular if it doesn't have some time, uh, right. Where, where people are willing to take a little bit of risk. So I like using stuff that's not super popular yet, um, to support it but I want people to know what they're getting into. I want people to know, Hey, this is appropriate for $3,000, right? Maybe. Uh, but it's not appropriate, you know, for your life savings. Fair. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So you are a big, uh, big proponent of the multi-sig feature of Bitcoin. Is that, is that correct? You think, yeah. you think every, yes. can you give me, give me some pros and cons? Cause I still haven't I shouldn't say exactly what my setup is. I have a fucking 93 of uh, 97 multi-sig setup and I love it, right? No, uh, for, for, for people that haven't dived into that aspect of Bitcoin yet, do you think uh, it's going to get easier to use, uh, more use, maybe not easier, maybe more user-friendly? And do you yep. think it's essential that people are um, looking into that? Yes. I think that in 100 years it will be super simple to use multi-sig that, uh, that people will open up their laptop, you know, maybe they'll, they'll plug in, uh, five, um, USB devices and they'll walk away with a three of five multi-sig and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll go put one in a safety deposit box and one in their, uh, you know, their backyard and, and tape one to their, in their attic or something like that. Right. Um, and then they'll be totally fine. I, I, I think that is the future. It's inevitable. Um, also, there, I know of a bunch of people that are working on that. Actually, Heavily Armed Clown is one of them. He spent the last year and a half doing nothing but trying to make that, uh, make some version of that a reality. Um, ben Westgate 
works really hard to do that. He's got something called Bales, which is like Bitcoin Core on Tails, uh, which is a great concept. Um, and he's put some time into that uh, over the last couple of years. Um, Andrew Polstra is building uh, something called Codex 32, I think. Uh, and that is basically like paper computers, which are, are very cool. Um, it's a little bit time consuming, I think. I haven't actually gone through the process, um, but but it's a really cool concept where you you don't even use electronic computers and you create a, a multi-sig um, using Shamir secret sharing. So it's not exactly Bitcoin multi-sig, but it's it, it's uh, close enough for for uh, for a layman to say it's a multi-sig. I think. Um, so there, there are some legitimate efforts to do that. I think even uh, uh, there, there's some other efforts too. Like, uh, gosh, I, uh, it's not Seed Signer. Seed Signer is kind of uh, I, I have mixed feelings about those guys. But, but I thought those guys were all. I thought those guys were all open source and excited, and like you make their products with just shit you buy off the shelf. You don't like them either. So I, I definitely like the idea of they're, they're correct that you need to be able to install the software yourself. Um, and I think they have the potential to be popular at some point. So I would throw them in there with like blue wallet, right? They're not popular yet. Cool concept. Uh, I do think that they could get a security flaw inserted in there and nobody would notice until a lot of people lost money. Um, but that applies to everything, uh, except for Bitcoin core really. Uh, so uh, it's not really slamming them. It's just saying like, well, you're, you're not, you're not popular enough yet. But in a hundred years, if a hundred thousand people are building products that use Seed Signer, and we have a hundred thousand competent developers that are looking at the Seed Signer code, um, then yeah, I mean, then you can trust it with your life savings. So uh, they're on a good path, I would say, uh, and I definitely don't want to slam them. They're in a category where I, I wouldn't want to, you know, be insulting or discouraging because I think they're they're doing enough that's right to where they should be encouraged. Um, but anyway, yeah, so there there are a bunch of projects. There's I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there is like a, a multi-sig, um, like open source software that that allow that helps you set up multi-sig. Uh, there's also Yeti, which is my project, um, yetichold.com. And there's walkthrough videos that show you exactly how to do that. It's a similar concept. It's just kind of like a, a, a skin on top of Bitcoin Core um, to help you use Bitcoin Core to set up multi-sig. Um, so yeah, I, I, think, I think it will get a lot easier um, in, in several years. But what people have to understand is you're early adopters. So you're either going to, you know, you're, you're using explosives when TNT was first invented. So you're either going to learn to be really careful when it looks like it's sweating or you're going to blow yourself up. And, you know, in 50 years, you're not going to have to worry about that because we're going to have explosives that don't sweat and are, you know, like, like C4, you know, you can hit it with a hammer and be fine. But if you're going to be an early user of explosive technology, you're going to have to learn how to, uh, you know, work around uh, some difficulties because it's not user friendly yet, but it will be. That's a fucking awesome analogy, man. I love a good Bitcoin analogy. I've never heard one like that before. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that for sure. Yeah, we're still very early adopters. You know, you always got to remember that. Um, I have fucking so many questions for you, man. I'm gonna have you back on for another show in the future. I kind of want to ask just a more philosophical question because you're kind of a cynical, <laughs> cynical dude. Um, coming into Bitcoin, well, before I found Bitcoin, I was very nihilistic, very depressed, very down, very thinking the world is just shit and everything. And then you find Bitcoin, you're like, oh, the money was broken. Everything sucked because the money was broken. And now the money is fixed. This is good. Maybe humanity will be off on a better path. And I'm recently starting to re-blackpill myself. And this is why. It's like, dude, you fucking talk to shit coiners. And we so Satoshi solved the money problem, more or less, right? And so it's like, we have good money now. And yet the majority of people from what I see are trying to re-break it and or just completely disregarding the solution to a problem. Like you said, it's like people that are holding the TNT and it's sweating and they've learned that it's going to blow up, but instead they just fucking, you know, rub it on their body and wait for it to explode. It's like, what are you doing? So do you, how do you feel about humanity in general moving into the future? Do you think Bitcoin is going to remain a 
tight knit group of fucking hardcore uh, libertarian uh, cypherpunk crazy tech dudes like what's in it now and you know psychopaths like me or do you think that maybe someday everybody will use everybody will use bitcoin uh so yeah philosophically we we definitely can spend a lot of time on this but i'm a christian first and then a cypherpunk so i do think that humanity is broken and it it needs to be fixed i think god has a plan to deal with that and part of that clearly is technology uh, solving a bunch of problems. I don't think that we're going to be able to create heaven on earth with technology, um, but I have kids that would be dead without technology. I might be dead without technology. 200 years ago, if you were eight years old, you and uh, you probably had a younger child in your family that was dead um, because about the mortality rate was like 50%, right? Um, I have never had any of my younger siblings die. Um, I've never had any dead kids. And that is a completely different world from 200 years ago. So I'm very optimistic that, uh, that things are going to get better in certain ways. Um, and ultimately I'm super optimistic that things are, that we will have utopia, but it, it will not be primarily a technology solution, I think. Um, so I don't know, that's, that's kind of a, a 50,000 foot view of my, uh, of my worldview. As far as like Bitcoin being adopted, I think, I, I think I'm, I mean, I know I sound cynical to, uh, to people that are, in my opinion, really naive about, you know, their, their, their security situation, but I'm not naive. I'm not cynical at all. I don't think, um, I think that Bitcoin is being adopted faster. My whole career has been technology. And I've never, including the internet, I've never seen something get adopted faster. Um, so it's pretty hard not to be optimistic with, with that being the case. And I do believe that it is going to end central banking. I do believe that central banking is a, um, a primary source of suffering in the world. Um, and I think before Bitcoin, we couldn't have ended central banking. Uh, I look back on... Um, Austrian economics books and libertarian kind of worldview uh, with a little bit of embarrassment because I thought I thought what I think a lot of Ron Paul sort of people thought um, that if the United States ends central banking in the U.S., you know, it's been done before, we can have a more free and prosperous country. I look back on that and say, no, of course we couldn't because it was a very it, it is a very profitable way to extract wealth from humans and. If the U.S. abolished a central bank and China didn't, China would be a much more profitable government, which means they're going to take over the U.S. first through soft, then hard influence, and then probably invasion. Right. So you can't. I don't think that an individual company can end central banking, but I do think Bitcoin can end central banking for all of us um, and make us way more productive. I think it's going to be a, um, a, a, a probably a thousand x productivity gain. And by productivity, I mean doing stuff that prevents people from dying and suffering, right? Uh, that's what productivity is. I think we'll see a thousand X improvement in productivity, you know, over probably my kid's lifetime because of Bitcoin. Sweet man. Okay, I need I needed that fucking hopium right there, and that feels good. <laughs> Maybe everything's gonna be okay again. Okay, I can come out of this. I'm like, if I'm gonna talk to anybody about the end of the world because these fucking shit coiners pushing their shit, maybe JW would be on my side. But you're. Uh, <laughs> You're still smiling, so I'll keep smiling, man. I appreciate that uh, that outlook. Let's uh, let's get out with a giggle here because we both we both uh, agree on this last topic. I want to hit the uh, infamous or famous new hot new pro- project on the market or not on the market. Noster. I'm talking about Noster. Why don't you? <laughs> Why don't you like Noster? And do you, Wait do you a minute, hear... you don't like Noster? Uh, well, I mean, it's it comes down to simplicity for me, right? Because if you want a social network, you need to be where the network of people is. In order to take over a network effect, something needs to be 10x better. If it's a technology, it needs to be 100x better. And Nostra is nowhere near that of Twitter. And then so people say, well, it's, you know, it's uncensorable speech and you can t- say whatever you want. Okay, well, first off, I haven't had that issue on Twitter yet. That may be personal because of me, whatever. Maybe I'm not saying enough bad shit. But two, it's like the internet exists 
there's still going to be just other ways to interact with each other. Like the internet was invented to move information around that. We already have that solution. Bitcoin was invented to move value around. We have that solution. So I feel like Nostr, although it's kind of cool, it's like still a project, a solution to a problem that didn't exist. I think people are emphasizing a problem that didn't exist. What do you think? Yeah. So this is a case where I might sound super cynical, um, but I'm not at all. Like, I do think that we are going to, within the next 10 years, solve the censorship problem on the internet. And I think it's going to be solved in a, a really great uh, permanent way. And I think Bitcoin is a big part of that. Um, like, without Bitcoin, I don't think we could have done it. With Bitcoin, I think it's inevitable. Um, and I think, uh, that that being said, I don't think Noster uh, brings anything uh, to the table on that path. Um, so that's going to be depressing to people uh, that that are super excited about it and think that it's going to solve all our problems. But I had the exact same experience with Ethereum when I first got it, um, because there's a there's a very difficult, hard path to create smart contracts and make them super flexible and uh, really deliver the promise of programmable money. Bitcoin's not, uh, you know, not as programmable as it should be. And so you have guys like Russell O'Connor um, that I, I uh, if you go to 10hoursofbitcoin.com, one of his lectures is uh, on simplicity. Uh, that started working on this problem, I think a decade ago. Um, so he was super early into Bitcoin and then immediately started working on this problem. And he's been working on it for 10 years um, and he's getting really close to releasing it. But in 2018, right, uh, I think early 2018, everybody was excited about Ethereum because everybody wants programmable money. They should. Um, it is going to be really important. It unlocks a whole bunch of stuff that we don't have right now. And Ethereum said that they were going to deliver that. And at the time I said, no, Ethereum is poorly designed. It has all of these flaws. Um, it's a shitcoin. And this was a time where Andreas was writing books about it. Even Bitcoiners were hesitant to call it a shitcoin, uh, and which sounds absurd now uh, to any Bitcoiner. Like, obviously, Ethereum is a shitcoin. Um, but there were quite a few Bitcoiners that didn't want to go that far. I guess uh, we still have that a little bit with uh, Monero. Um, there's still quite a few Bitcoiners um, that don't totally want to call Monero a shitcoin. Um, maybe it's not too bad uh, anymore, but the, anyway, whatever. Um, the, the point is, is that I said at the time, it's clearly flawed, and I believe it's designed to be flawed. It's designed to be a scam. And maybe it's also designed to take a bunch of the wind out of our sails um, so that we put a ton of energy into building on a foundation of sand, right? Like we, we put a bunch of energy into, into uh, vaporware instead of encouraging Russell and being excited about what he's going to deliver and throwing all the resources possible at him, right? He should have had a team of 20 people and this genius is just grinding away on his own, essentially, <laughs> since 2018. I think he, he has a small group of people now, three or four guys. But three or four guys working on, like, the Apollo mission. It, it's disgusting. And that's, that's where we're at right now. Um, so that was kind of programmable money. Uh, and then there was another example that I, that I tweeted out um, that was exactly like that. Uh, and I'm trying to think of what it was. Uh, but anyway, I've seen the point being, I've seen this pattern quite a bit. Right. Um, and this is a known technique of people that want to disrupt open source projects, right? They create a bullshit version of it. And then they spend a lot of PR and marketing and get people excited about the bullshit version. And then they rug pull it. Um, Microsoft had this policy where, uh, if there was an open source project that competed with their product, we're not even talking about like tinfoil hat government conspiracy stuff. You can look this up. They had a policy that was um, uh, adopt, ex extend, kill. I think it was some, some version along those lines. And what they would do is they would get excited about an open source project. Um, then they would extend it. So they would make it do all kinds of stuff and, and over promise uh, and then under deliver. And then they would pull out of it and say, oh, this is impossible. You know, it's not working. And that, there, there's memos uh, that that explain exactly this whole process, right? That you can, you can get your hands on because of the discovery when they were, they were involved in lawsuits. So that's, that's basically what I think Ethereum was. I think that's the same thing with Noster. I think, um, 
the decentralized identity uh, stuff um, and what what Jack Dorsey was calling Web5 is really interesting and really well designed. It takes advantage of um, stuff that Microsoft developed over the last few years on Bitcoin that nobody really knows about. Um, it gives you all the features that you would want in uh, in a truly censorship resistant social media platform. Um, and just as that was starting to pick up steam, Noster comes out um, and doesn't solve anything. It's just like Ethereum, I promise you, it solves no technical problem. I said this about Ethereum, what problem does it solve? Smart contracts. Well, in order to have smart contracts, you have to have censorship resistant money. And Ethereum proved it wasn't censorship resistant, therefore it doesn't provide smart contracts. It, it wasn't complicated back then, it's not complicated now. Noster, oh, what does it provide? Oh, it provides censorship resistant communication. No, it doesn't because you don't even have censorship resistant identity. You can get censorship resistant identity using Bitcoin and uh, the Web5 stuff that they they were, you know, I, I think they're still making progress on it. I haven't watched it that closely. Um, but uh, but Noster explicitly rejected that, right? Um, these guys said, no, we absolutely will not use that technology. They gave no reason for it other than, oh, it's too complicated. It's not complicated. Uh, anybody can learn how it works and anybody can actually use it within probably 30 minutes. Um, and that's a, that's another pattern I think you'll notice with the bad guys, right? The bad guys are always telling you you can't do something. Oh, it's too hard. Just use the easy thing, right? It's like, no, it's not hard. You can spend 30 minutes and you can learn how to install Windows and then you can install Bitcoin Core. You can run a wallet that every Bitcoin Core developer knows is trustworthy. Um, you know, Windows wouldn't be my first choice, but uh, you can do that. Like your grandma has probably gotten annoyed that her computer was slow and reinstalled windows and and you're hanging out with these people on spaces that have convinced you as a 25 year old man that you can't install windows and then install bitcoin core like you like running a full node is uh this this uh you know grandiose project no it's not you like double click install you click next five times whether you know what you're typing or not like whether you know what you're reading or not and you have a full node and you have a wallet that's very trustworthy um, so that, that's a, that's a, a very standard technique is trying to convince people that things are hard, that, that are not hard. Um, but yeah, I just, I, it, it's, it's the, it's the Ethereum of social media. Um, and it's not, you know, I think Jack Dorsey hopes that it will evolve into something that's not stupid. And he's trying to take advantage of all this excitement around it, which may be a good strategy. Um, so maybe I should just be doing that too, instead of, uh, instead of complaining about it. But I'm telling you, as it sits right now, it solves no, no problem. The Ethereum of social media is the funniest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm absolutely stealing that, and I'm going to post it all over Twitter whenever I see somebody say something about Noster. Oh, you're talking about the Ethereum of social media. Yeah, yeah, that's great, great shit. That is fucking awesome, dude. I uh, really appreciate your time tonight. If there's anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about real quick, let it out. Let people know where to follow you if you want to uh, give your handle out and anything else, man. Uh, you know, I think I am... Let me see what my handle is. It's been a while since I've had to do this. Um, JWWeatherman underscore. Um, on Twitter, uh, lots of unpopular takes, uh, lots of things that seem cynical, but but really aren't. It's it's not hard. You can do it. You can run a full node. You can run Bitcoin Core. Multi-sig is not hard. Um, you just you know waste a Saturday playing with software uh, that confuses you instead of wasting a Saturday you know listening to people that are paid to trick you into buy their crap product. Right on, man. Appreciate you. Thanks uh, Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Go follow JWJWWeatherman underscore. Good shit. Always nice to hear uh, hear your perspective. Always nice to have uh, the other side of the story, man. So, again, appreciate your time. Uh, listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll, uh, I'm going to start pumping episodes out weekly again because it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of people out there to talk to. Uh, what else? Buy as much Bitcoin as you can before the end of the world. All right. See you next week. <laughs> Bye.